Welcome everybody to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host with the most, the beast with the least, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. An exciting week this week. We have two reports, not just one, but two reports from the Toronto International Film Festival, even though our critics didn't actually go to Canada, which is a mysterious land that no longer allows Americans to visit. We also are going to talk to Scott Gold, frequent Book and Film Globe contributor Scott Gold, about the new FX Hulu miniseries, Why the Last Man, adapted from the popular comic book series. But first up, Sarah Stewart, Rotten Tomatoes film critic approved Sarah Stewart, Book and Film Globe contributor, talking about Dear Evan Hansen, a new adaptation of a Broadway musical. I am not featuring a song from Dear Evan Hansen on the show this week because those songs are terrible. Instead, here is the legendary Mark Bolin and T-Rex with Whatever Happened to the Teenage Dream, an excellent song, and it's a question I ask myself every day. Hope you enjoy the show. Book and Film Globe contributor Sarah Stewart is here. Sarah Stewart is a film critic, a Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic. She's written for the New York Post and for CNN and for many other places and for us. And we're happy to have her here. Hello, Sarah. Hello. So you went and didn't, but didn't really go to Toronto for the film festival this year, right? I did not actually go which turns out to be a pretty uh, prohibitive uh, way to do the festival this year. Right. So you're going to have a film festival and you're going to put a lot of restrictions on international travel. And, and then you're going to take critics from out of the country and severely limit what movies they, you allow them to see. Right. Right. Um, I'm not sure what the end game here is other than sort of creating a, a demand by scarcity but everything, you know, I, I, I was more interested in some of the mainstream titles that were going to be playing there. And it turned out that this was really, uh, this movie we're about to discuss was the only one that was available to me. Well, demand by scarcity is always a great formula for getting uh, independent film notifications out into the general public. <laughs> I find excellent PR strategy. But you didn't review an ind- independent film for us this week. You reviewed the uh, screen adaptation of the hit Broadway musical Dear Evan Hansen. I did. Yes. And you, like pretty much every other critic I've read, didn't, didn't like Dear Evan Hansen very much. I didn't. But I will say, going into it, I went into it with, with earnest intentions. I am a musicals person, and... I was eager to see what all the conversation was about. I've been hearing about this musical for years and years. And, um, you know, as much as I really like the old musicals, I, I thought that it was admirable, you know, that there was this new one that was about something other than, you know, retro sort of sexist celebrations of, uh, you know, traditional female male lifestyles and so forth. I, I You know, this is about teenagers and the internet and social anxiety and depression. And, you know, it seemed like, uh, it seemed like good material for uh, Stephen Chbosky, the director who wrote and directed The Perks of Being a Wallflower, which is another movie about uh, high school misfits. So it was- A very good movie about high school misfits too. It is very good, yes. I thought it was much better than the book actually. So I had kind of high hopes for this. And I 
hadn't seen the trailer for the movie before I saw the movie. So I came into the, the, the debate that we will talk about uh, sort of after having seen the movie. Now, yeah, this Dear Evan Hansen is a musical that, you know, it's not something I'm super familiar with, but like my tween nieces, when they, when they were tweens, they're teens now, but they, they loved Dear Evan Hansen. They knew all the lyrics. They, they mm -hmm. wrote Evan Hansen letters. You know, he would, the, the, the play touched a nerve with certain kinds of like sensitive teeny, teenage tween types. Yeah, yeah, and I thought that was great. Like I'm, I'm always down for what the tweens and teens are, are watching and, and liking, you know, as, as ancient as I am. I, I like to think that I sometimes have my finger on the pulse of those things. So uh, yeah, it was, I, I thought, you know, this might be a great musical that I had overlooked. But it didn't, it didn't succeed. And, you know, one of the, uh, the first thing you point out, the major problem you point out is that the lead in the movie uh, is in real life, 27 years old. He's playing like a 16 or 17 year old. And that might not be too much of an age gap, but I watched that trailer and it, it's pretty awkward looking. They might as well like just cast Jesse Eisenberg or something. I was thinking, you know, Jesse Eisenberg probably would have looked better in the role because he sort of resembles a, a gawky teenager even now as a full-grown man. But, uh, yeah, this Ben Platt, you know, he, he originated the part. He was on Broadway playing Evan Hansen. But the, this was, you know, seven years ago when he started doing it. And he has aged, and there's nothing wrong with that. But he does not look like a boy anymore. He looks like a man. And you can't just put him in a you know, in a sweatshirt and an overgrown haircut and, and have him stand, you know, sort of with his shoulders hunched and make him look like a teenager. It just doesn't work that way. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously it's a singing part, so it's not, you have to cast a teenager who can sing, but there are so many teenagers who can sing. I mean, just go on TikTok, you know, it's not like you can't find a, a good looking teenager who can sing. It's not like there's a dearth of those, you know, but and it's also not like, you know, you'd think he might have been willing to give somebody else a chance, having, you know, gained so much fame from, and, and a Grammy and a Tony um, from playing this part, you know, to, to have some uh, fresh meat in this movie might have been kind of the generous way to go. But um, no, I mean, he, he does have a great voice. I will say that he does uh, this falsetto that's kind of haunting and, uh, and he, you know, he sings the songs very well, such as they are. But that comes to my second problem with this movie. Which is that the songs are terrible. They're kind of terrible. I mean, I, not, to, not to disrespect the tweens and teens, um, but I, I, as I said in my review, I think that this is a style that you either like or you don't like. For me, um, the, the songwriters who, who also wrote some of the songs for La La Land, or all of the songs for La La Land, maybe, um, it's sort of a modernistic style, um, you know, somewhat indebted to uh, Ben Folds, I think, who is actually name-checked in this movie and a, and a poster on a bedroom wall. Um, sort of a confessional and very kind of repetitious, uh, feelings-y, emo style. And it just struck me as very ham-fisted and uh, sort of, sort of faux uh, profound very impressed with itself and actually kind of trite. Right. Something that might've worked if you watched it on stage or listened to it on Apple music on endless repeat while you're crying in your bedroom or whatever. 
Does yes, it? Looking at a poster of Harry Styles. Yes. <laughs> or uh, well, well, there was a guy. My my niece used to love this guy who was a YouTube star named Joey Graceffa. He was ah. she, she was obsessed with him. He was on the amazing and he was on the Amazing Race, and we had to watch that. But anyway, yeah, that that sort of thing, that Teen Idol thing. You know, I you know I prefer modern musicals that kind of have more of a retro style, like the Book of Mormon, or. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, and then, you know, you can say what you want about Hamilton and In the Heights, but uh, I mean, you know, that, that music is certainly very catchy. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So, so that, so, so, yeah. So the songs are tacky. You did mention there were, there were a couple of like legitimate youth performers who were good, like Caitlin Dever from Booksmart is in this and you, you praised her performance and also Amanda Stenberg, who um, was in the Hate You Give uh, movie that played the lead in that, and she was amazing in, in that movie. And uh, you you seem to like her in this as well. Yes, she's a great actor, and I thought she was so so good in this. I guess the her part was slightly tweaked from on stage when I think her character was a little more uh, kind of a, a narcissist. Um, and and here, you know, she's kind of a she's more of a striver. She's like straight A student. She's in every club, you know, she's the president of everything, but as he, as you know, the, the, you know, social outcast Evan Hansen discovers, she is also struggling with some mental illness issues and they sort of compare the medications that they're on. And she says, you know, they're her, her big song in the movie is about how you just don't know how, how there are so many people all around you that are struggling with stuff like this which was actually one of the only other songs I liked and which uh, Stenberg co-wrote, it, turn, it turns out. Originally for the, sh the movie. For, for the movie, yes, exactly. Right. So, um, all right, well, and also there are some adult performers. Amy Adams is in it. Does she sing? Does Amy Adams sing? Does Julianne Moore sing? Yes, yes, they both. I mean, Amy Adams is a, is a known singer uh, from as far back as uh, Enchanted. And uh, Julianne Moore, I feel like she sang in something but I can't quite remember what but yes she's got a great voice it turns out and she sings one of the other songs I really loathed uh about um being a divorced mom and how hard it is and you know I have all the sympathy in the world for that but god that song sucks it just I it's called big small or something like that and it just ugh, nope not for me but uh, you know you were, your review is so funny and you point out like this is not a train wreck on the order on the order of cats you know people aren't going to like take mushrooms and go see Dear Evan Hansen, have, <laughs> no. have a have a crazy trip. There, I mean, I've rarely seen a movie so eviscerated in in print, and I, you, you get the sense that uh, that the audiences are going to respond the same way to it. Yeah, and sadly, it can't be improved with hallucinogens. Yeah. So that's that's too bad. Nothing's better than a good turkey, though. Really, when you're a film critic, you kind of wait for oh, it. Yeah. Not, not, you know, yes, movies, there are movies you love, and then there are lots of movies that you're kind of mad about. And that, but when a really like big turkey comes along, you, you're, you can never really truly be prepared for it. And uh, it's, it's almost like, a, it's like a, um, a weird high that you get off of watching and reviewing these things. All right, Dear Evan Hansen will be opening in theaters everywhere on September 28th. And it sounds like it will be closing in theaters everywhere a couple weeks after that. So, Sarah, <laughs> th thanks for stopping. Sorry you didn't get to see more Toronto uh, Me too. Film Festival. They were so mean to you. I'm going to have to write them a sternly worded letter. And, you know, my, my influence will, will, will pay off, I think. You'll change everything next year, I think. Thank you. For sure. For sure. All right. Thanks a lot. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye.
Also attending the Toronto International Film Festival this year, our chief film critic, Stephen Garrett. Stephen, I don't believe you actually went to Toronto, though, right? I did not. No, you know what? And I mentioned that in passing in the article. Actually, I didn't mention it covertly. I mean, I mentioned it covertly. I, I basically said there's a virtual option and people are taking it. And uh, I am, yes, one of those people who took the virtual option. I did yeah, not say I, as much in the article. I just right, said well, there is well, a you went, option. Right, and you went, you went to uh, Paris. Oh, not Paris, Cannes. You went to France uh, for that film festival. But, you know, Canada... <laughs> Going to Canada is a much tougher proposition. Apparently, it's much tougher. You know, I don't know. I look back, and, and Canada's like Brigadoon. It was this weird uh, two-week window where infections were down. The Delta variant was a, just a little twinkle in somebody's eye. You know, we were starting to get that. But there was a real sense of optimism that the, this was under control and life could continue, you know, back to normal. And, uh and Delta variant kind of blew that up. Canada was right. slow on vaccines. So it was always on the bubble whether or not uh, I personally would go to Toronto. And I ended up just not going for a lot of different reasons. But that was one of them, certainly. Psych, Canada sucks. So, all right. So the. <laughs> the Canada's lovely. I uh, love Canada. Mm -hmm. Canada's a lovely place. And I'm really sorry I'm not in Toronto. But, you know, I say I went for different reasons. One of them was. Uh, I just asked around, and a lot of people weren't going. And part of the reason you go to these festivals is to see people, to connect, to schmooze, to network, uh, et cetera. And I didn't want to just be in a hotel or in a movie theater by myself up there, you know. Right. Eating poutine, crying into my poutine. <laughs> yeah. So um, you saw – so they, they screened Dune, uh, the Dennis Villeneuve, uh, Villeneuve, Dennis Villeneuve's remake of Dune. And you say in your piece about, about Dune – that it really needs to be seen on an IMAX, which is where the, the IMAX uh, debuted for the first time ever in Toronto, I don't know how many years ago, and they screened Dune on that screen this year at the festival for Canadians. That's, that's correct, yes. There is a, um, I, I, was, uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to get uh, to see Dune here in New York City at an IMAX screen, a proper IMAX theater. Um, and there is an IMAX uh, screen in this big Scotiabank multiplex where most of the press and industry and public screenings happen at Toronto during the festival. Um, but Toronto has this um, original uh, IMAX theater that was built in like the early 70s or something, um, which is kind of a, a bit of a hike from where the central uh, nexus of the, the festival going is. Um, and so that's where they proudly said, oh, it's going to take place in this original theater, et cetera. And I was able to go there a couple of years back when they had First Man, which was their big, you know, kind of um, IMAX worthy type release that they had there. Um, so it, 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 and it was great. First Man is the terrible Damien Chazelle movie where uh, Neil Armstrong cries on the moon. It's a wonderful Damien Chazelle movie. We, we differ. We but don't. yes, we're talking about the same film. We're talking about the same film. And uh, what, this is what I did not understand. And, and uh, uh, Venice, my understanding of Venice is that there's not an IMAX screen, you know, uh, on the Lido, on this little island where most of the stuff happens in Venice during that film festival. But I'm sure they have really, of course, wonderfully large screens. So I, I guess really you should see it on as big a screen as possible, and if you can see it in IMAX, all the better. I did not know that Villeneuve actually composed the film with IMAX in mind. There are scenes where you are in, you know, palatial darkness, and you're seeing conversations happen, and it's basically scope, 
right? The letterbox kind of thing. And then anytime you're at some huge sweeping moment, especially on Arrakis, when you're you know out in the desert, it suddenly it, it fills up the screen top to bottom, and it is overwhelming and it's this kind of sensorial, uh, just you know, uh, just delight. Yeah, that sounds that sounds very good. And when I say I'm going to see it, uh, based on your recommendation, when it finally opens here in Austin in October, I'll go to the Texas State History Museum or wherever they have the IMAX, and I'll oh nice, I'll just absorb it. I'll absorb it. So you you really liked the Dune, the 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 Denis Villeneuve uh, Dune version. I, I I did. I liked it a lot. I I I don't think it is an absolute masterpiece, and I don't blame him for that. I blame the idea of taking a very wonky 1965 dense sci-fi epic classic. You know this kind of film. I mean film. This book of biblical kind of adoration. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's you're setting yourself up to fail because you really can't get that grandeur and scope that the book does in a movie unless that movie is nine hours long, you know. Um, so maybe it should be a miniseries that is played on IMAX screens. I don't know. But he certainly does a better job than uh, Lynch. Lynch uh, tried to do the whole book in a, just a little over two hours. Villeneuve takes a little over he takes two and a half hours just to do the first half of the book. So it's it's not as rushed. It's it's uh, and it, he has more time to really sit with moments and imagery and really delight in all of the non-plot type moments, if that makes any sense. I think one of the things that attracts filmmakers to this material is how cinematic it is and can be. And Lynch, I think, did actually a kind of wonderful job in this really suicide mission to try to make this into a movie. Hodorowsky, Alejandro Hodorowsky, the, the kind of wonderfully demented Mexican filmmaker, um, there was a documentary, Hodorowsky's Dune, that explained how he was passionate about bringing Dune to life. And he says in the movie, uh, early on in the movie, he, he said, I never read the book. I never read the book. I just had all these ideas. I think people just kind of pitched him the basic you know, plot points and characters, and his mind just reeled. And he came up with some wonderful stuff. And the DNA of that is in so many movies, including this one. Well, so Hodorowsky and Lynch, in some ways, were ahead of their time. You know, now we're, we're, we're at a moment where there, it, we have the technology to make these movies, and we also have audiences that are willing to sit through extended um, sci-fi epics. You know, there's a the Foundation trilogy is coming to Apple Plus TV. They're making the Wheel of Time. You know, sci-fi books that we read as kids or as teenagers um, are now suddenly we're now in this sort of golden age of like uh, uh, old-fashioned sci-fi EP. And so Dune is the first arrival, the first, the first we have first contact. Exactly. Well, and it's funny you mentioned Arrival. Of course, that was Villeneuve's other sci-fi film, aside from Blade Runner 2049. But Arrival, I felt, had these moments of absolute uh, weirdness and unease and dread and surprise that are nonverbal, that are experiential. You know, when Amy Adams goes in to try to make contact and communicate with these aliens, you feel like you're in a completely unfamiliar 
world and you get that with dune as well kind of in spades and i think i think that's what villainous is really understanding about this material is that there is this i mean dune is celebrated for having you know uh, this very very um detailed uh religious aspect you know with the uh, bene gesserit and these the kind of these these women these witchy women so on so to speak that have been around for thousands of years um and it really is this intersection of religion and politics but i bring up that religion because there is this Kind of, I, you know, to, 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 I'm sure misuse a phrase, this mysterium tremendum, where you are in the presence of the divine and you were shaken by it, not just awed by it, but truly kind of shaken to the core. And I, I, I like to think that the film actually does touch that sort of sensorial uh, feeling um, with what he's trying to do. So go for that. Don't necessarily go for the plot because they don't even finish it. It only does the first half of the book. Well, and I, you know, I'll say about Villeneuve's movie movies as well. Like, you know, I don't particularly love Arrival or Blade Runner 2049, but there are some cool set pieces in both of them. You know, the the, the early scenes where she's trying to communicate with the aliens in Arrival, and that awesome hologram fight in Blade Runner 2049. Those are very memorable. But there's a, yeah. I don't know. Like, I I, I find I find his uh, you know his he's he doesn't really do the interpersonal uh, community. Stuff that, that when humans actually have to talk to each other, that that may not be his specialty. I uh, I don't disagree, and you know the Zendaya Timothy Chalamet you know kind of meeting of minds. You know he's dreaming about her. There's some sort of connection between the two of them. She is invoked, uh, you know, uh, throughout the movie in these kind of very dreamy uh, moments, and then they meet, and it's kind of like she's like, "Sup? How you doing?" You know, it's like it's very anticlimactic, and I think it speaks to what you're saying that I think, yes, the personal yeah. contact is a little lacking in the grand you lost, scale. You lost me at the Zendaya Timothy Chalamet meeting of minds comment. Hey, man, look, all I can say is I have a 12 year old daughter. I mentioned Dune, and she said, Oh, is that the Zendaya movie? And mm -hmm. I was like, You know what? Sure. If that gets your, you know, butt in the seat, why not? She also, yeah. she's wise and snarky. You know, she's like, what is it about? And I said, well, it's about this guy who ends up being this messiah on this planet where he helps, you know, this uh, persecuted uh, group of people. And she was like, and who's the guy? And I said, Timothy Chalamet. She said, oh, so it's like a white man savior movie. And I was like, yeah, yeah, basically it's a white man savior movie. <laughs> it's from 1965. It's from 1965. You have to put it, you have to put it in context. We still had white men saviors back then. All right, so let's let's move along. Uh, to the rest of Toronto, we'll, we'll do a little speed round. You you mentioned you have a piece up on Book and Film Globe this week. You mentioned a bunch of other movies that also sound really good. I thought the the Indian movie about the uh, the motorcycle driver sounded pretty pretty interesting. Uh, you know, it sounds more interesting than it actually is. I kind of included it because of that. Um, but yeah, it's called Doug Doug, and it kind of is taking the piss out of religion and also taking a piss out of a a culture in India of. Um, this uh, idol, idolatry, this fetishistic idolatry that is in the country where, you know, they have, um, they have temples and they have shrines to every different type of thing that you can imagine and everybody always leaves something or leaves money or et cetera because they want their personal uh, ambitions to come true. You know, I want my business to succeed, I want my marriage to be happy, et cetera. And so there's a need, a human need to have some sort of vessel for this, and this movie's kind of poking fun at that. Uh, all right, so so we said we, what else? We got a new Antoine Fuqua movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal, sort of 
Antoine Fuqua is, you know, most famous for Training Day, and he made, a, of course, a bunch of other films. This is also sort of a, a cynical cop drama, right? You know what? It's not so cynical. It's actually kind of interesting. You know, I paired it with uh, this other movie, Encounter, and kind of talked about both movies as being these kind of COVID times movies uh, without really being overtly about um, lockdown and anxieties about other people. But we're just at this boiling point um, where I think everybody's stressed about everyone else. And there's, you know, is it paranoia or is it just this kind of simmering madness that we're all feeling? Um, I think both of these movies kind of touch on it and they use two uh, kind of male performances to explore that idea with um, with Anton Fuqua. This movie's The Guilty. It's actually a remake of a Danish movie that came out in 2018, basically about a 911 dispatch officer who gets a call from a kidnapped woman and um, has to figure out how to save her. Um, but there are all these other things that keep popping up. He's got a big court date uh, the, the following day, and there's a reporter that keeps calling saying, we want to hear your side of the story. So there's a sense that maybe this cop is not all he seems, and also that uh, he's been pulled off of street duty and put on 911 dispatch for a reason. Um, so there's a lot of information that's parsed out that keeps the thriller going. Um, it's it's not a great movie, but it's a very effective movie. And also, Jake Gyllenhaal is just fantastic. He's just really good, as always. Um, it's it's an interesting movie. It's a good watch. It's going to be on Netflix. Maybe we've reached that moment in, in movies now where, you know how the 1970s were full of paranoid thrillers that didn't necessarily talk about Vietnam, but uh, sort of hinted at, you know, stuff going on underneath the surface. Maybe now we're going to get to that point with COVID. Everyone's been praying that it would lead to some decent art. Maybe we're getting closer. Uh, maybe so. Maybe uh, so. Yeah. And then the other one is Riz Ahmed, who, again, is just proving himself to be this incredibly talented actor. Um, very intense, uh, very smart guy. The, uh, the movie is called Encounter, and it kind of plays with sci-fi tropes. Uh, and also with this guy who is an ex-Marine, and he's convinced that people are uh, infected with this alien virus that kind of takes you over and is a bit of a body snatcher type thing. And he wants to rescue his kids from this because he feels his ex-wife and her uh, current boyfriend are aliens, et cetera. So you can see where this kind of touches on ideas of madness and, you know, uh, lives unraveling. It doesn't have, he doesn't have magic glasses though. To make no, you no, he does not. No, it's not. true. I wish. This is not a John Carpenter movie. Hard to top that. All right. We'll do real quick. We're going to do a, a second speed round because I've got you on the horn here. Um, there's some documentaries uh, that you're going to you're going to cover in a, in a upcoming book and film globe piece. Uh, a couple of key documentaries at, at Toronto. Yeah. I mean, you know, really quickly, uh, I find uh, that there, you know, documentaries can be very edifying about events that you've heard of, but don't completely understand all the details about. So uh, there was one on Attica, which I only really know, as most of my friends do, that, you know, it being kind of a punchline from Dog Day Afternoon, where Al Pacino rallies a crowd by saying Attica, Attica, which is this injustice about a prison uprising that was tragically kind of uh, tamped down in the early 70s in upstate New York. And this really gets into the details, and it is a horrific story, and it's absolutely worth watching. Um, the other one is The Rescue, which is about the uh, Thai soccer team the boys stuck in the cave, um, this was a couple of years back, and uh, how they were miraculously all rescued 
a dozen of them after getting uh, trapped in a cave during monsoon season and the waters were rising and they had to figure out how to get them out. And the story is so much more harrowing than I thought it was gonna be. You know the outcome and yet you're still riveted. That was a great one. There's one called Burning, which is about the uh, bushfires in Australia, which ate something like 59 million acres of land, a land mass um, that the, the, the smoke generated from that fire was equal to the landmass of Europe. And uh, it is just staggering how heat and dryness just created a tinderbox of a continent. Um, so it's also a window into climate change and you know the, what, what we can and can't do and what we're in for. So, um, and then the, the last thing I thought was really interesting, Bill Simmons uh, has, uh, is executive producing a bunch of documentaries, music docs apparently um, for uh, HBO. The first one that already came out, Woodstock, 99, you know that documentary that yes, aired? Yes, we wrote, about, we wrote about it on the site. Right, and so the I guess the, the next two in the pipeline are um, one called Listening to Kenny G, which I was like, no thank you, and then people kept saying, no, 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 it's actually pretty funny, it's by Penny Lane, this documentarian who did uh, Hail Satan, which is a hilarious documentary, really smart, really funny. And this is really smart and really funny too, about what is the appeal of Kenny G, and what is he? Is he jazz? And he says, I, you know, he said, these are labels. I am, he sold 75 million copies. He is beloved around the world. And it is a hilarious insight into his appeal. That is cross-generational and cross-ethnicity. You see like African-American jazz, you know, uh, festinados love Kenny G. You see people, he's working with The Weeknd and, and uh, you know, um, uh, Kanye West. Um, you know, they love him. It's, it's you know, the, it's incredible, it's, it's just the, the oddest thing. And he doesn't think of himself as jazz, he doesn't think of himself as coming out of any tradition, he just creates his own thing. And it's very odd. And one funny thing is that uh, in China, apparently, the, there's a song he did called Going Home, it's an instrumental song, and they play it at malls in China, they play it in stores in China, all across China, to tell people to go home. Like they play this song, it's an instrumental, and that's what people associate with going home. It has been playing, or throughout the whole country for 30 years. It is, it is just, people love it. And do they have, they have footage of that? They do, they do. And then Kenny G said, yeah, I was in a concert one time in China and I played Going Home in the middle of my concert and everybody left. <laughs> but he's like, he even says at one point, I don't even know if I like music, but I like what I do. You know, he's very honest. He doesn't seem cynical. He doesn't seem like he's trolling people. He just is is what he is. And he's very kind of superficial. He makes very lovely music that is kind of pablum, you know, earworm pablum, I guess, for the majority of people. And it, it does bring up this question, what is taste? What is good taste, bad taste? He's incredibly popular. Tons of people love him. So I thought that was fascinating. And then there was a, a documentary called Jagged, which is on, on Alanis Morissette, which she apparently is kind of disavowed, didn't show up for the premiere, which, you know, as a Canadian not showing up to Canada to promote a documentary in her own country, I guess is a huge slap in the face. Yeah, there's I no imagine. excuse. If you don't if you don't go to TIFF, OK, that makes sense. But for Alanis Morissette to not show up, I mean, my God, you know, it, that must that's got to be a dagger to the heart of a very polite society. So um, but, you know, the, the it really is about mostly Jagged Little Pill and that album, where it came from, why 
Uh, she wrote about the things she did and, and why she wrote it in the way that she did. A lot of people call it a very angry album. It's a very honest album. And she's gone through a lot of painful stuff, which she addresses in the film. And I think that's why she feels like she can't uh, really approve it, because she feels like they address how uh, bef when she was a teen pop sensation in Canada, she was kind of taken advantage of romantically and sexually by a lot of older men when she was still at a tender age. And that age was kind of, you know, 15 to 18. And it would be no surprise to anybody who listened to Jagged Little Pill that she had some pretty bad romantic encounters. I think that's what you ought to know basically is all about. Um, so it's no surprise. And yet, um, because the fact that she says, you know, I've gone through a lot of therapy about it and I've talked about it uh, with, um, with my therapist and my psychologist. And, and she's, she says on camera, I've come to accept that I, even though I was saying yes at the time, I realized I was uh, taken advantage of and that is, you know, the definition of statutory rape. Um, and now, you know, the rip from the headlines is this whole like, Alanis admits she was raped, she was raped, you know, and it's, it's a little more nuanced than that. I also don't think it's that surprising or sensationalistic. And I think it's also an organic part of what the, the film is really trying to talk about, which is how uh, a woman who has gone through some pretty harrowing circumstances turns it into art and finds a cathartic way to share her experiences in a way that feel empowering. So I actually quite like the film. I'm, I'm a little sad that she doesn't uh, feel like it represents her. But also well, artists are getting a little more control over their own art. I mean, you know, like this Miss Americana documentary that Taylor Swift uh, cooperated with is lovely and is revealing to a point, but you also get the sense that you, Taylor Swift is controlling everything we see. So yeah. I, it's not yeah, a good trend. Taylor Swift is controlling everything we see, not just a documentary, <laughs> Stephen. Well, okay, so, so, so Jagged, the Alanis Morissette documentary, you know, obviously Alanis doesn't like it, but you ought to see it, um, apparently. And, uh, you know, it's nice to see it. <laughs> It's nice. If you like, if you like the album, if you don't like the album, don't see it. You yeah. know, it says what it is. You know, so you should be a self-selecting audience. Yeah, I'm gonna probably pass up. The Kenny G one sounds sounds pretty good though. That um, actually I, is yes. Uh, even if you do, especially if you don't like Kenny G, I think it's worth watching. Uh, you got. I gotta say, it's nice that Bill Simmons is finally finally finding some success in the world. You know, it's it's been a long slog for him, so it's what good an that underdog. he's getting appreciated. What 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 what, what a scrappy <laughs> underdog. Yeah. All right, speaking of scrappy underdogs, you can read all of. Stephen's stuff on Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Stephen, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Frequent Book and Film Globe contributor Scott Gold joins me today to talk about a new show that is streaming on FX and Hulu or FX on Hulu, some version of FX or Hulu. It's Why the Last Man, a an apocalyptic a uh, sci-fi show based off of a popular comic book series. Scott, hello. Hey, Neil. Good to be back here. Yeah, so you uh, you were very excited about Why the Last Man. This has been long in gestation, this, this particular project. Yeah, it's taken uh, about six years since they first announced an adaptation in 2015, and the comic series actually goes back to 2002. It ran from 2002 to 2008, um, and I picked it up late in the run, um, there was a comic book shop up the street from the restaurant I was working at in Brooklyn, and I used to go in after work, and they recommended Brian K. Vaughn's stuff, and I absolutely devoured the entire series. So I have the whole stack of the comic run, and it's just great. The writing's great. The art is great. Um, pretty much at the time, you know, everybody 
was, you know, raving about this series. I think Stephen King called it like the best comic I've ever read or something, you know, very hyperbolic. But uh, but it's really wonderful. And fans of the comic have wanted an adaptation for a long time. Uh, and when it was announced in 2015, obviously people got excited. But then they ran into production problems. Uh, they they changed showrunners at one point. They had to change the the lead actor who plays the the lead male role uh, once. Um, and so it just kind of you know suffered all of these setbacks. And people were really wondering, you know, is this really going to happen? But it was still on the books. And so finally, it happened. And of course, you know, more production delays because of COVID and you know everything involved there. Uh, um, but finally, we're getting the first three episodes came out um, this week, and uh, it's pretty exciting for those of us who are fans of the franchise. Yeah, so this is a uh, this is a, a post-apocalyptic scenario where it, it's a virus that slays most men on planet Earth, um, and leaving leaving us to a uh, a matriarchal society where, where women have to do everything because there are no men. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty catastrophic. The idea is, and they've had to be very specific about this uh, for reasons I'm sure we'll get into in a second. But they uh, the idea is that every mammal with a Y chromosome uh, very very abruptly, almost simultaneously, just dies very a very violent bloody death, um, and it kind of leaves the entire world uh, in sudden chaos. Uh, and there are two. Y chromosome survivors. It's this um, this young American guy named Yorick uh, and his pet capuchin monkey ampersand. And people think it's you know if you haven't read the series, you're like well, you know why does he have a monkey? Like what's the deal with the monkey? But uh, that all comes into play later in the story. Um, so you have you know the last man on the planet, which of course you know echoes um, that uh, very funny series uh, that was on that was streaming recently. Um, the last man on earth, the last man on earth. Yeah. That was a comic version of kind of, uh, almost the same situation, at least for the first few episodes. But, you know, uh, it's in, in, in the best way that speculative fiction offers, it gives us a really great premise, uh, you know, saying, you know, what if this big thing happens and then lets it play out? Yeah. I mean, I guess it would have to, you can't just say what's, what if this thing happens and then ends it. Um, but, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, um, it, it came out at the same time. The, the comic book series came out at the same time around the walking dead. Right. So there was this sort of, um, there was a sort of end of the world vibe going on post nine 11, which is, and, um, and so now we're, we're seeing the, the screen adaptations of that. Oh, absolutely. It's very clear echoes of 9-11 in the source material and also in the show. Um, I think, you know, they might have hit a little too close to home, you know, in the big, you know, uh, disaster tourist apocalypse porn scenes of the, you know, everything happening. You got to get into that because that's what people are jonesing for, right? They want that real visceral, horrifying situation of everything going down. And there was one scene where you see a low flying plane go over the city of New York, and then out of frame, uh, you hear it crash. And I was like, you know what? You know, even Rick and Morty shied away from that one. Like, you know, that was uh, that was that was a little tough. Um, and also, you know, in the aftermath, there are, you know, the photos of all the men everywhere, the missing men, and that, of course, echoed if you were living in New York City after 9/11 at the time. A very similar situation of those who were missing from Ground Zero. Uh, so it's very, very clearly. 
a product of that time and place. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the, you know, the militarization and the, you know, the governmental response to what happens after that. And also, you know, the survivors PTSD of what happens to people in the aftermath of a you know, massive uh, disaster. I guess the real question is, is the show any good? Because I, I, I know your um, your review had some had some skepticism about this, that, that, that it obviously wasn't a disastrous uh, adaptation, but that it, it certainly it lacked the humor of the books is what you, you seem to be saying. Yeah. The one one thing that people uh, really gravitated to was uh, in the comics was Brian Cavon's sense of humor, which is displayed mostly uh, through Yorick, who has a very wry kind of dad joke sense of humor, which is displayed, you know, it's his coping mechanism. Uh, and in my piece for Book and Film Globe, I compare it uh, to Mark Watney in The Martian, who uses humor as his coping mechanism. And it's something that really connects us to that character. And unfortunately, that humor is, you know, a, it's a little bit missing from the writing in the show. But that said, there is really great writing in the show, uh, and the casting is uh, overwhelmingly great, and the acting is really, really good, and we're giving a lot of really cool stuff. Diane Lane is wonderful as the kind of low-level congressman who, because of uh, all the men dying, she's like low on the chain of succession, but she's the highest one up, so she becomes the president of the United States. And then all of the political maneuvering by all of the other women uh, she's a Democrat, so all of the Republican women are coming saying, hey, like, you just took over our administration. They're claiming it was a coup. There are people surrounding the White House, uh, women, you know, protesting and destroying things. And, you know, we, we clearly see where that's coming from. Um, but there are some really poignant scenes mixed in here uh, that, you know, are really, you know, give us something to, to be hopeful for with this show. But what I loved about the comics was that it immediately launched into this big adventure. And, you know, all York wants to do is find his girlfriend in Australia. But of course, you know, the powers that be said, Hey, you're the, you're the last man around. Like we need you for, you know, to find out why you live to see if we can like reverse engineer any sort of, you know, vaccine or, you know, figure out how we can, you know, move the human race forward. Uh, and so, you know, that involves a lot of, you know, adventurous travel and dangerous situations. There are sexy pirates at some point, you know, like uh, very comic book stuff. But uh, but it kept us turning pages uh, and it kept it, you know, even despite the fact that it's an apocalyptic story, it kept it uh, light and fun to a certain extent. Uh, it certainly had its serious moments, but, you know, it's a comic book. So, you know, it, it definitely had this adventurous quality to it that so far we're missing in the adaptation. Yeah, you know? well, light and fun is not really what our culture is doing right now. <laughs> Unless it's Ted Lasso, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know if you've noticed. Yeah, or like, you know, I'm watching this Mar Marvel What If series, and I know you're watching that as well, and it just seems to be like every week, let's see another way we can murder the Avengers. Yeah, it is super dark. Uh, and I think yeah. it does speak to where we are as a, you know, as a people in a society right now, you know, going through COVID. I just lived through, uh, you know, another hurricane in New Orleans and, you know, like seeing, a, you know, post-apocalyptic scenarios. Um, it's not that it hits close to the bone. It's what I'm living through right now. So uh, I think the two things that, you know, artistically writers and producers and people who, who create fiction – in these times tend to do is either lean into it or lean away from it. 
Uh, and that's what we're getting right now. So clearly why the last man is leaning way into it. Uh, and, you know, I'm still here for it. I, I still love these stories. Uh, you know, I love The Walking Dead. I love, you know, Zombieland, you know, you know, any 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 post-apocalyptic thing. It's it's always a competitive nar- narrative, uh, compelling narrative for me. So I'm here for it. Yeah, well, I'm living through it, too. You know, I live in Texas and, you know, we uh, we the entire world froze over. and We lost our power and our water for a week. So, um, you know, scenarios like this don't seem so uh, so far fetched anymore. Yeah, but, but but I guess it's better to watch a fictionalized version of it than actually live through it. Well, anyway, uh, why the last man is now airing? How did you watch it? Did you watch it on FX on Hulu on FX on Hulu? It's all very confusing how you can actually consume this stuff. I watched it on Hulu. Yeah, that's that how, was the best way for me. Yeah, that's how I have it as well. Uh, so all right, well that's a, that that is our recommendation. Watch it on Hulu, unless you watch it somewhere else. <laughs> Genius cultural commentary you tune in to Book and Film Globe for. Scott, thank you so much for a great piece. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Neil. All right. All right. Thank you to Scott Gold for talking to me about Why the Last Man. And also thanks to Stephen Garrett for being one of the first people on Earth to sit through the new Dune movie. And to Sarah Stewart for enduring Dear Evan Hansen at the Toronto Film Festival that wasn't the Toronto Film Festival. I am Neil Pollack, your editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. We're going to close this week. Well, I was going to close with Last Dance to go with Why the Last Man, but I decided that was kind of corny. Instead, we're going to go with Nowhere Fast from the 1980s movie Streets of Fire, sung by Diane Lane, or at least sung... Uh, lip-synced by Diane Lane. I don't know who actually sung the song, but that song is a real banger. Streets of Fire is a great lost movie from the 80s, and this song is always fun to listen to for 80s kids or for kids from any age. In any case, I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you enjoyed the site, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Keep reading, keep watching, keep listening. I'm Neil Pollock. I'll talk to you soon. Actual insight there. <laughs> Audio Hopper.